there. My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. The North East Coast has a long tradition of producing good shore anglers, and it also has a long tradition of producing, amongst other things, excellent winter cod fishing from what can be some of the toughest terrain and conditions in the country. Little wonder then that success in both categories goes hand in glove. So with that in mind, Whitley Bay shore match angler Ken Robinson joins us here to explore the prospects for getting the very best out of the fishing along his native stretch of the Tyneside coast. Start us off, if you will, with a quick geographical overview of the area in terms of locations and types of ground angles are faced with, both along the shoreline itself and, more importantly, below the waves within reachable casting range. Assuming that my area actually runs, let, let's say it runs from south of what we term the colliery beaches up to three houses sort of area the ground it's, it's extremely varied and what's really surprising about the ground around here is that if you viewed it at high water you would think it was predominantly beach but surprisingly virtually all of the beaches with a few exceptions once they uncover especially on the bigger tides it's really a, just a massive rock and weed and it's learning all of these sorts of areas that, that contribute to successful fishing. What you do have um, in the, the south of the region, what were the colliery beaches, are all hard ground now. It used to be very steep two beaches and you were chucking into relatively mixed ground. All of the, the rubbish that was tipped by the collieries is now gone and it's extremely rough. It's, it's quite surprising. But in between the areas, as you get north, we have a, a few estuaries, and, and these are the sort of learning the nursery grounds for, for anglers, really, where consistent fishing we gained most of the year. And between these, we have some reasonable beaches, beaches that when the tide goes back, you have significant sort of rocky skiers that give you access to areas of, in some circumstances, relatively deep water. One or two beaches, as we get sort of further north, the likes of Blythe Beach, which is more or less clear, and then further north from that we have Druridge Bay, which has some hard ground within it, but again is quite interesting in terms of it being clear. And there are one or two further north going up to sort of Emilton and around there, where it's possible to get some quite good catches of codlins in the winter and spring it's interesting for other species in between the beaches of course the ground can be extremely rough and it's quite interesting on the very very big tides that you can get out the areas where the rock formation actually takes you out some sort of in some circumstances i guess you're, you're probably pool five six hundred yards out and obviously it, it's uh giving you access to some very, very interesting ground. Most of it is actually surrounded by fairly rough weed. Really good, strong, heavy kelp, good holding ground. Quite a brutal area then, by the sound of things, on a number of fronts. What then are the dangers and potential problems you regularly face in terms of personal safety, tackle losses, and of course getting fish in when working these rock ledges? Obviously when you've got ground like this where you have got opportunity to actually get across into sort of deeper water and, and out onto to rock ledges, a good knowledge of the ground is essential. 
personally, I think over the years I've probably spent quite a, a lot of time on the bigger tides going, viewing, having a look, walking out and climbing around areas because where you've got little patches of sort of high ground or rock ledges that you can fish from, invariably there are areas behind it where the tide can come in behind you. Unfortunately, we, we've had a few problems with safety issues, people being cut off or on one or two occasions, unfortunately, we've lost people that we've known that have actually taken a few chances and unfortunately come a cropper. Um, but taking all sort of issues into account, it's more than possible to get into areas that are going to produce quite good fish. What you're really looking for are, are areas where you can get across past the weed and you can find and see quite often areas that will hold fish. Obviously when there's a sea running you're going to get white water around those edges of, of that area and it's the dark, nice dark patches. And over the years you come to learn exactly where you may find holes that will hold fish and it's into these as the, the tides and on the bigger tides the, these fish will quite often move into before they, they start to return back into the, the weed as the tide progresses back in. Obviously, the ground itself is, to, to get across here, this, this quite unsafe sort of ground to walk across. It, it's really weedy, the rocks are slippy, and it's quite essential that you actually are prepared for that. Decent set of boots with uh, studs. Invariably, it's, it's chest waders for us, because obviously, if you're fishing out on any of these sort of marks, uh, you're following the tide back, and you Hopefully you're not taking any chances, but you, you do tend to, to sort of wade across gaps knowing that these gaps will actually free up as the tide gets back. But this again presents the issue of making sure you know when it's time to give up and start to move back over. Because obviously if there's a, a little gully behind you that's going to fill up on the flood tide, you need to be on the other side of it when those tides start pushing in. And invariably again, the, the fact that there'll be a sea on when you're fishing at the best times, you've got to take that into account because nothing worse than getting halfway across a gully and finding yourself being lifted up by a swell and carried along. It's uh, those times that you've got to be extremely cautious. Tough on tackle too. Depending where you're fishing, obviously, you can get away with standard tackle and fixed rigs without rotten bottoms on some of the ground. And, and you, you tend to learn that in the less dense kelp, it's quite possible to actually fish with one or two hooks even and be able to drag it out, providing that you've actually got fairly robust bottom end tackle. But when you're fishing some of the really heavy ground, some of the, the sort of kelp, really heavy kelp areas, it's very sensible to use um, rotten bottoms and just put up with the fact that you're going to lose a sinker every couple of casts thereabouts. Going back in, in time, when I started fishing, we were sort of at the towards the back end of the Scarborough's where we would be using lines of, say, 60, 70 pound main line all the way through. And it was a case of fixed leads, everything dragged through. And invariably, if you got stuck with the lead completely, then it was a hell of a job to get it out. But more times than enough you could actually just drag it through the kelp. The kelp wouldn't certainly wouldn't cause any particular problems but 
again the the likes of the the Scarborough fishing meant that you were actually fishing fairly close in and that in itself is an issue in terms of the fish around some of these rock edges can actually be virtually at your feet 20, 30, 40 yards out it's that sort of tackle that forced you to cast close in whereas today what you end up with is people irrespective of where they're fishing tend to get their gear clipped up whacked out and invariably missing the fish that are actually at their feet and these fish can actually be quite big the better fish can quite often be very close in uh, and uh, some people have lost that knack I think Are we talking here in the main about winter cod or are the cod available all year round? Strange enough the predominance of, of cod fishing really is a winter species for us here there's some nice columns to be taken during the summer and they're generally the big coloured fish that have been sitting in the weeds for some time uh, and it's quite possible around the rock edges and in the deeper water to actually find fish the likes of up Newton around sort of football hole around that sort of area Praster even down here in front of, of me at, at sort of St Mary's Island and round the hill and places like that there are opportunities where you can catch codlin all year round but it's invariably during the winter when the bigger catches and the better fish around the turn of Christmas really just after Christmas into the beginning of January sometimes is when the bigger the occasional double figure fish that do turn up seem to be taken around that particular time there used to be a, a big spring run of codlins. We used to get a, a good run in, in the Tyne, and it was sort of just before the crabs started here, and our crabs start later than most areas in the country. But we used to get big catches of codlin from some of the lower estuary marks around North Shields, and it was nothing massive, but occasionally there were, were better fish. But it wasn't unknown, you know, to get sort of 10 plus fish in an early morning session down on the on the Tyne when I first started the Tyne and the Blythe were two areas I could sort of get to either by train or by bus and used to go digging worms down in the Tyne the ragworms, jump on a bus and go up to Blythe again fishing the estuary there on the inside of the old little inner pier and catch quite consistently codlins two, three, four pound on the ragworms up inside the, the estuary itself and that was sort of springtime and during the winter you would get them quite consistently but if I was looking for codlin then it would generally be during the winter that, that's when I spend most of my time as and when I do pleasure fishing these days What about species other than cod? Yeah we, we, we haven't got a great deal of species in the North East although uh, over the last few years, there has been a, an improvement and a number of species starting to get caught more regularly than they, they used to, certainly when I was young. One interesting species of the place that we've been getting over the last few years, I've had best to sort of three pound, but there have been some very good fish taken in the Tyne, off the, the South Shields Pier, Blythe Pier. They've always been there in the boat. We've had quite a lot of fish off in the boat of Seaton Sluice and that sort of area. But in the last few years, the pier that I fish in the club at Tynemouth, they quite often get in a competition, maybe 
half a dozen ten decent fish, two pound plus, and uh, that has certainly become a, a fish of interest that people seem to enjoy catching. I certainly don't mind going out and playing for them. Cold fish, cold fish have actually deteriorated in terms of numbers over the last few years. We used to have a, a host of cold fish. It used to be really good. And a few fish around the sort of three, four pound mark used to be caught and the odd one. I, I can remember I've seen a couple around the sort of five, six pound. But since we had all the, uh, the water outfalls cleared up and none of the sewage is coming into the sea, we seem to have lost the great numbers that we had. We had really big numbers all around the, the coastline, but they seem to have disappeared. Pollock, there's some nice pollock. I think if people actually put a bit more time in on the pollock, they would certainly be more successful, and certainly those who do try for them and have had some very good fish up to sort of double figures, one or two decent marks. It's generally the deep water marks. St Mary's is capable of producing some reasonable ones. Um, up north we're talking sort of colour nose and around the deep water areas around Snook. And it, it's quite possible to fish with float gear, eels. It does produce some quite good fish. There are plenty of flats in terms of dabs, flounders. In fact, that, that's where I suppose I cut my teeth a little bit in sort of mid-60s in the time where we used to get some phenomenal big butts, as they call them, £2-plus fish, and you were catching quite a lot. There are still some there now. The weir used to produce a, a hell of a lot. Unfortunately, I think that got fished out quite a bit. There is a number of fish there, but certainly not the numbers that there used to be. The time produces quite a lot and the beaches springtime up the beaches when the fish have gone out to spawn the likes of Allen Beach and, and up Embleton they and Blythe Beach to some degree can produce some big bags of half decent fish uh, occasionally they get the odd turbot up there as well up the north we tend not to see them down here I can't remember one being caught Rass a lot of rass in the boat but there are some well certainly around the hard ground off St Mary's there are good chance of, of actually locating wrasse but as you move further north during the summer there, there's quite a lot of wrasse to be caught and uh, unfortunately they get killed again some of the clubs have banned them from their, their opens and things but unfortunately there are still some that allow them to be killed other species there's not a a great no I'm just trying to think of all the ones that <laughs> that we get odd ones of certainly the dogfish have started to show occasionally I think I had one this year with the first one I've had ever on the east coast as north of, as of sort of the Tyne but there's one or two get caught every now and again there's very very occasional conga there are odd ones at the north and certainly they get them in the pots locally and I've seen a few when we had those really bad winters back in the uh, the late 60s there were a few washed up on the beaches and what about rays bream and lump suckers if you remember you used to collect both of these species for me to take photographs of back in the mid 1970s <laughs> during sort of february when we've had the big seas it was not uncommon to see quite a lot of fish washed up on the beach or quite often they'd actually just they're still alive and still thrashing about as they, they lay on the beach 
but we, we would get the odd raised bream and we would get a large number of uh, lump suckers coming on the beach. It wasn't unknown to the unscrupulous anglet, picking them up and suggesting that they'd actually caught them. I'm not sure whether it was you, it was somebody did tell me that they actually hooked a one, they caught one on a bait. I can't remember where that was, whether it was Ireland or over here, but uh, I'm not aware of anybody actually hooking one. Certainly seen quite a few, certainly seen them washed up on the beaches, certainly after the, the, uh, the rough seas that we get over here. Tell us a bit now about weather conditions best suited to being in with a chance of a good result. Best conditions for fishing around here tend to be, well, obviously depending upon the species you're after, but for the codlins, what really essential is a decent swell. What you want is that any wind around sort of northeast round to southeast, which will put on a good sea. And certainly in the back end of the year, sort of September, October, November, it's as soon as you get this big swell running in, tends to be better with a slightly bigger tide but irrespective of tide once the seas hit the beach give it half a day to a day and there's a good chance that there's going to be a lot of fish behind that what you've got to realize is that our ground whilst it looks extremely rocky and a large portion of paces where there is sand between this it's surprising how much bait that sand holds and on the monster seas, when you get a really rough blow, you find in some places that you get razor fish washed up. I've seen white worms, big black lug worms. Quite often if you fish in the likes of Blythe Pier, where the West Pier, you can, you're actually fishing, it runs out on the beach, albeit it's at the side of the estuary, it runs on, on the beach and the swells run through the legs of the pier. As a consequence, what you get is um, a nice heavy swell running across the sand in the corner by the, the pier where it holds quite a lot of worms and chucking into the back of the swells the fish are obviously just going round and, and picking off anything that gets washed in that sort of area and it, it's more often than not these fish are actually full of big black lug worms razor fish but what is surprising is during the early part of the, the sort of the season in the, in the September Octobers, in the same area, what you find is those same fish are actually full of sand eels. The sand eels getting washed out of the sand by the swells, and these fish are actually stuffed with them. And it, it's that time that really encourages the fish onto the beach. But what what really is surprising, although you'll catch those fish using a, a fish bait, you won't catch as many using the fish bait as you will using a, a lugworm, despite the fact it's stuffed to the gunnels with <laughs> the uh, sand eels. What about the tides? Obviously, tides have a major impact on, on when we're fishing off the, the rough ground, and to a lesser degree, the beaches themselves. What happens on the bigger tides for the, the rock edges it means that you can actually get that bit further out and what happens is that the fish that have been feeding usually on top of some of these rock ledges have all drained back into holes that are now surrounded by dry kelp, dry ranges of rock and you get into areas that 
won't be available on the smaller tides. Similarly, to a degree, the, the beaches, whilst people that haven't got a, a, a good particular eye for fishing, looking at the beach would think it, it has no features, but if you know the beach and you can read it, the likes of, if you take an example of, of Blythe Beach, it's actually a, a whole set of small sandbanks and little gullies of water, which obviously you gain access to slowly as the tide regresses. And it's not unknown. I, I've seen situations where you can be fishing on a sandbank and somebody's actually pulled fish out from the gully behind you or the, the small depression to your right whilst it's still got a bit of water in it and it's not unknown to get two or three or four fish when you're sort of 30 or 40 yards further out than the, the fish that are being pulled in behind you or, or adjacent to you. So it, it is fairly critical picking the right tides and it, it's not difficult to, to deal with the, the tide tables that we've got predicting when you're going to be able to get out onto uh, some of the, the better marks and certainly planning where you're going to go it's essential to understand what tides are going to occur on that particular day. Tides themselves, I would suggest, in terms of, of fishing for cod on the northeast area, you're probably talking about 60% of the time, if not more, is spent fishing around low water. In some of the areas, it is feasible to fish high water. There are certain marks that can produce good fish, the likes of the, the cliffs at Newbigin, you can fish high water again. You've got to be extremely cautious. We, we lost somebody up there a few years ago when the cliff collapsed. But fishing from it can be very productive. Similarly, down south of the Tyne, down to sort of Seam area and some of the beaches down sort of Horden, Black Hall, it, it's possible to fish high water quite successfully. So the knowledge of where fish is best at, at what particular time, there's generally always somewhere you can actually go and fish at any stage of the tide. But again, it's a combination of tides and conditions that will enable you to predict where the fish are actually going to be. And therein lies some of the problems that we experience today that, say, when I started, certainly in, in my early days, I guess you could predict fairly reasonably that if the conditions were right, the tides were okay to go where you wanted to go, you had a very, very good chance of actually catching fish. And codlins were not prolific, but certainly you had a pretty good success rate. Whereas today, what we've been finding in the last few years, the sort of quality of the fishing can be very, very good with the right conditions in, in the right place but you can actually be fishing in the right place, on the right conditions, and find that there's actually nothing there. Uh, whereas, not far away from you, you may have a very small area that's producing a number of fish for a number of anglers, and uh, that there seems to be no major logic to that. Um, prime example was the last two open matches up north of here. One small area at Craster produced the winning bags on two weekends. 
and places very close to it, very similar types of fishing ground into a, a nice area of hard ground, a bit of tide, a bit of sea, produced absolutely nothing, no bites, no fish, whereas this one particular area we fished, I think they produced over those two weekends, produced about three or four double-figure fish, and the winning bags were both over £20, so rather strange these days. It's a bit harder, but it's an interesting challenge. If you visit a piece of shoreline you're not familiar with, when you look out across the water, what can you read about the geography under the surface from things like wave patterns and other types of water disturbance? Knowing and understanding how your tides run to start with helps a little bit. Here on the east coast, it, it sort of ebbs to the north and it floods to the south. It doesn't come in and, well, the, the water literally goes out and comes in, but it actually, it's travelling left or right, depending on uh, whether it's having a, a flooding. Once you get down to the beach, nine times out of ten, I would have looked at the beach and had a good idea of what it looked like at low water. But if I go to a, an area fishing a match, for instance, where I haven't been for a long time, and, and you've got to remember that over a course of a couple of days, a beach can completely change, absolutely change totally. What you're looking for is, preferably with a little bit of swell on, you should be able to get a good indication of the contours. Anything that, that sort of shallows off a little bit will produce some white water. You'll get a sort of a turbulence that, that shows quite easily. And with it, what you're really looking for is where that turbulence then sort of eases away again and it goes black, goes dark again, and you've got a bit of clear water, and then you get a little bit of swell as it touches the, the beach closer to you. You're looking for those nice holes. But the, I think one of the important things is if the sea gets a bit too heavy and whilst it, it still remains fishable, what you'd look for is an entrance into that area that you're fishing. You need to understand, try and understand where the fish are going to get into where you're fishing because obviously there are occasions, certainly when it gets to the right at the back end of the year when you get fish that are, are getting towards the spawning period. I think they're loath to actually get hard into that white water and as a consequence they'll look for gaps in what will probably be a little sandbar under the water and they'll look for those and they'll come round that way into the area which is, is obviously, it's a larder for them. It, it just fills up with the lugworm and, and anything that gets washed out of the sandbar at the back. And they'll, they'll actually move up and down these gullies. They'll move in and they'll go out of another entrance that generally, if it, unless it's, it's just that gentle swell, I think they'll stay off, they'll feed along the edge of the sandbar. But it, providing there's enough swell on, you can actually read and you can see, and you're looking for the colour of the water, you're looking for the swells, and preferably you're looking for an entrance and, and an exit. Because remember, as the tide's going back, if that's what you're fishing an ebb tide, those fish need to get out of there and, and, and get round that, and they will leave it till the last minute. As I said before, it's not unusual to catch fish at your feet or fish very close in. It's interesting. We touched briefly on terminal tackle losses earlier. Can we now look in a little more detail at your personal terminal rigs? Fishing for codlins, it's predominantly, where possible, a two-hook rig. That's got to be the favoured rig. I know that on sort of the southern areas where we go and fish matches and things, they seem to be into three hooks, but it, it's... Uh, 
I think it's the quality of the fish that they're fishing for that they tend to be quite happy to fish for sort of three hooks but two trailing hooks one above the the lead and one below the lead is an optimum rig it means that if you're putting out baits it means that you're roughly hopefully going to have at least one of those two baits fishing most of the time because there's a good chance that when you do put your, your gear into this rough ground there's a crab or even a lobster going to get at your bait clean your bait off or pull it under a rock so the chances are you, you've got more chance of having a fishing bait if you've got two hooks on. When fishing in the really rough ground, where it, it's a sort of 50-50 chance to get your gear back, the preferred option would be single hook rig, rotten bottom, lose the lead, be able to drag it in. Now the, the bottom end invariably is going to be a, a 50 pound, 60 pound chop leader and 40 pound trace certainly for the codlins. There are quite a number of areas that today we can sort of fish rock edges and, and fish over weed where you're fishing into slightly cleaner ground. It's a bit of mixed ground and on some occasions you're actually fishing well out. You're right out on, on rock ledges but you're actually casting onto clean ground and it's at those times that it's well worth putting a clip rig on, either a single hook rig with a big bait and remember that Quite often we're fishing very, very big baits, certainly in the kelp areas. Difficult to suggest that you can actually put a too big a bait on for a codlin. I don't think you can really. It's more or less, if you can cast it, the fish can swallow it. But single hook, double hook clip rigs can work on some of these tidal areas and take advantage of a little bit of movement when we can pick sort of clean run fish, codlins, likes of... Uh, Newbiggin and Cullinose Point where you can get access to, to quite good clean ground. In fact one day I remember I got a place off there and fishing one of the, the Sea League matches which is a bit strange but you're fishing adjacent to some very hard ground but again clip rigs, bit of distance but remember that there are chances that the fish are going to be at your feet so don't get bogged down with actually casting long distance all of the time it's only when fish tend to be scarce that you want to wang it out. So do you expect to lose tackle every trip as the price that must be paid to be in with a good shot? Is there nothing you can do either at the business end or even say with more powerful rods, reels and lines to at least try to minimise any of this? Choice of rods and reels can be pretty important. Um, obviously a reel with a decent retrieve. I'm using sort of we find sort of 525s at the moment, pen 525s, loaded with, depending on where I am, I'm down to 30 in, in some of the, the rough ground areas, but fishing with a, a bimini to the, the shot leader, and that, that in itself has proven very, very difficult to snap. The rotten bottom goes every time, but occasionally the hook lengths, when they get caught up, there are the occasional snaps, but I think sort of nine times out of ten, it's the bottom end that goes and you, you sort of minimise certainly fish. Tackle losses are not a significant issue, it's fish losses. That, that's what we're really trying to combat. And the rods we're using at the moment, using Sonic SK5s, and I've got a, an HCT which I've been using at the moment, and sentries, there are plenty of sentries which have got a good backbone. And the ability to actually rip or 
the pressure on fish and just keep that pressure going as the fish comes through the weed because if you're going to get caught it's hopefully not going to be the weed because the weed with a lot of pressure on it and and good quality tackle at the bottom end you're going to drag your fish through it it's invariably if something gets lodged in a crevice or between rocks it's that that causes the problem so the ability to be able to crank a big fish in or a well even a lesser one through the weed it's extremely important that you do have quality rods and reels that aren't just going to keel over when you sort of try and put some pressure into a fish when you're using a rotten bottom are there not times such as when casting hard for distance when you run the risk of the lead flying off or is it not that weak of a rotten bottom oh no that's <laughs> there speaks a boat angler now there's, there's quite a, a number of ways of actually making sure that you don't lose the lead on casting there are a number of proprietary sort of rotten bottom clips that you can purchase these days it's so simple to actually make i don't know why people don't make more themselves but personally i find that using the quick links the links that you use for your leads that have got a little loop on for using for a clip down rig if you actually use one of those attached to your lead and your light line attached to the the link and then attached to another clip on the end of your shock leader what you do is you actually just hang your quick link over the link that's attached to your shock leader it's obviously free and when it hits the water it comes off the link but it's still attached by your lesser line so your lesser line the sort of bottom end 15 pound doesn't take any stranger in the cast it just comes free and obviously most times actually (laughs) what's rather frustrating is that if you, you cast out with a rotten bottom on, it doesn't. <laughs> it it comes back every time, and then you you put a, an ordinary rig on, thinking the bottom's okay, and then you suddenly get stuck up and lose a lot again. So it's a funny one that, but yeah, it's it's so simple. It really is very easy and very safe. That's the critical thing. Obviously, when you're trying to wang it out, you want to make sure that whatever you've got on the bottom is going to enable you to cast without it cracking off every time. That would be nonsense. One thing I picked up on very quickly when I fished with you in the past is that unlike shore anglers in other parts of the country with the tackle boxes and bivvies, northeast anglers like to travel light. I think it, it's the nature of the, the ground that we fish on that dictates how you fish, what you actually carry with you. I started carrying a lot of my gear in, in a bag. I mean, we used to, when I first started fishing, everybody would have a, an old wicker basket and, and carry everything around in that. A lot of people still use tackle boxes, but certainly the likes of any comfort in terms of a brolly or a, a bivy just <laughs> wouldn't work, apart from the fact that you'd have to carry them across rocks and things. You're following the tide back, and you're following the tide as it comes back in again. You're fishing areas maybe for only an hour at a time, and it, it just isn't practicable to uh, try and set a little camp up and certainly when you get tides that recede several hundred yards just necessitates a sensible approach and quite often to get onto the the actual shot that you want to fish it might mean you have to leave your gear a little bit further back and carry stuff in your pockets or an additional small bag out onto some area that you've waded onto Uh, one one of my pals here that 
that fishes. I know he he's given up with the bag altogether, and he's got this wonderful concoction of I think it's sort of ex army backpack with all these strange packages on his side, and he carries all his gear in that, which works for him. And providing you've got a, a bait bucket with a lid on, you don't worry too much about um, things getting washed about, because that's the other consideration, of course, as you you move out onto these rock edges and you follow the tide back. Every now and again, you'll you'll get a, a swell which isn't life-threatening, but certainly the ones that come up and surround gear and move gear, and it, it's not unusual to see things being washed around occasionally. So it, it would become wholly impracticable to carry great fishing camps around with you. That's bottom line, I think. You also dispense on the tripod or any other sort of rod rest on most occasions, preferring to hold the rod with the boat resting on the top of your wader boot. I think it's either a novice thing or an old person's thing, wanting to put the rod on the rod stand. Whilst you can see some of the bites, if you're experienced, I guess you can recognise the bites irrespective of whether there's a big sea running or not. But the trouble with putting the rod on the stand is that you won't see all the bites. And certainly there are times when you'll get lots of weed on your line. So the preferred option, and certainly the one that's going to give you the most success, is holding the rod, actually standing holding the rod with the fingers, if you have your line, the main line, as it runs down the rod, looped between your forefinger and your second finger, you'll feel absolutely every single indication. In fact, you'll feel things that you won't see on the rod tip. It's like a second sense. You tell yourself that you're actually going to have a bite. It's not a bite, but you, you can feel something that obviously is the precursor to a bite and as you learn through experience it's surprising how many times oh, I think I'm going to get a bite and you do actually get that bite and certainly by holding a rod you don't miss many bites that's for certain having said that it's not unknown to actually get a fish or start reeling in find that you've got a fish lying on despite the fact for 10-15 minutes you've stood holding your rod felt nothing at all yet you start reeling in and lo and behold, he has a fish five, ten pounds. It's just unreal. It's strange, but uh, it's out of necessity, really, that you, you do that. And only I tend to, to use the rod stand more if I'm fishing a match and I want to get a second rig done up. And then, once you've got your gear sorted, is to pick the rod up and stand and hold it. And hopefully it speeds the whole process up as well. Because there's nothing worse than having a fish lying on and if you're fishing to a sort of a, a time scale, say 10, 15 minutes, 20 minutes even, with a big bait on, and that fish had maybe taken that bait sort of five minutes into your cast, you've just lost 15 minutes of productive fishing time. Could have had it in, had it out again. And what should the bait bucket normally contain? Bait, obviously the the primary bait for a lot of the species tends to be peeler crab. Some have spent collecting it. Round here, unfortunately, we our bait supply is sort of constrained. The bulk of it tends to be sort of May through September. Get a good supply for the winter, get it frozen down, and uh, the crab tends to be used fresh during the summer for most of the species, a little bit for all the flats that we get. But it's fairly critical that you have a, a good supply of that as a, a mainstay during the winter. Lugworms... I guess is probably the next important bait and certainly one that once we get into the the winter period, fish will on occasion actually take that in preference to the crab. 
certainly the likes of the beaches, the, the Blythe beaches and further north, then lugworms is a prime bait. In fact, I, I would sooner have a bucket of lugworms, decent, preferably big black ones, but uh, the crab on the beach, to be quite honest, although once you get onto the, the rock edges, it's a completely different story. Ragworms, ragworms for the place, my preference was a lot of people seem to go for a crab worm mix. I found it a, a ragworm. The bigger the better tends to, to pick off the, the bigger place. So I'm I'm quite keen to do that. And I have seen ragworm in fact I've done very well with, with ragworm and mussel fishing down on the colliery beaches, down sort of the CM areas, rye up areas around that area, picking off the better size fish for whatever reason the a ragworm and mussel seems to be a good concoction. Mussel's a, a bait that we've got access to all, all year round. It's probably the, the only bait we've got easy access to. And personally, I prefer fresh. I always make sure I've got fresh, either in a tank in the, the, the fridge or I can get it easily every couple of weeks because it's biggish tides. You can get it in the river beside us here. And it's a really underrated bait. It's certainly mixed with crab and mixed with worms and things like that. It works extremely well for codlins and over the years it's, it's proved a wonderful bait in the boat. It catches a lot of fish and it's cheap, easy to get. It can be frozen down. In fact, after I've been out and anything I bring back goes in the freezer and gets used in the boat. I take it you're lashing it on with elasticated thread. Obviously these days there's a, a good quality, very thin elastic thread instead of the old shearing elastic that was probably about half an inch thick it works quite well but i must admit that during the summer if i can get away without using any thread at all certainly with fresh crab it works quite easily but for mussel and for the frozen crab you do need to put some thread on i always used to use a, a very fine cotton thread and some people use it successfully still today and there's no reason why you can't but I must admit, I prefer to keep the amount of thread I put on to a minimum. Of course, the other baits that we use are razors, and they tend to be in, certainly in, in terms of being able to get them yourself in, in short supply these days around here. Uh, we used to be able to get quite a few, as you'll remember, but they've all gone. They've been in with the uh, saline solutions and boxes of salt, and unfortunately, I think they've killed off or taken everything that was in the beaches as we used to know them. The only source these days is either off the fish key for human consumption or from the uh, the Chinese supermarket, but they can be obtained. It's not too difficult. And they work great when there's a sea on in the winter for the codlins and the likes of Blythe, and they make a good addition to, to baits on the rock edges. Correct me if I'm wrong, but crab is one of the main reasons why you tend to buy old bangers of cars to travel around in. I remember well bait gathering with you on one occasion when the crabs escaped in the boot, and as peeler crabs have a tendency to do, they squeezed themselves into the tightest of corners where you couldn't get at them, where they subsequently died and later stank out the car. <laughs> hey, that's terrible, that really is. Um, it's a sad reflection. On, I don't know whether it is a sad reflection these days, actually, but um, as you get older, you think I get better. My grandkids still complain about getting in the car. They keep telling me it smells. I can't smell anything. But obviously with, with crabs being one of the important baits, it means that 
I'm out and about, certainly during the summer, a lot. In fact, I quite enjoy going crabbing, to be honest, but I can go back in terms of problems with crabs, but I, I always remember that uh, a few years ago, I was driving along with, with my mate Arthur, and as you suggested, I'd had a... I must have had... I hadn't realised it. I should have done. That I'd, I'd had an escape of, of crabs in the car at some stage. And as we were driving along, he, he said to me, he said, what's that? There's a fly coming, flying about. He get it out and opens the window, the fly goes out, shuts the window, and then there's about half a dozen flies. And then within minutes, he has dozens of flies in the car. We had to pull the car up. There must have been an escape. He died under the front of the, somewhere in the car. And, and actually, they were coming out through all the air vents. All these bloody blowflies were coming out. Um, we had to get out. And, of course, ever since, people have made fun of me over that. <laughs> the number of experiences I can guess over the years with the crabs, I can remember I lived in a flat on the second floor of a house in, in Whitley Bay when I first got married. And I always remember screams coming from downstairs. The neighbours downstairs, he was actually a bouncer, would you believe, coming bounding up the stairs and uh, seeing there's crabs all over the place coming down the stairs. And they'd obviously escaped from wherever I'd had them at the particular time. But again, it was another interesting escapade. But going back to my roots, right right back to the early days when I, I sort of I fished with friends of the dad and what have you there. They used to run around in an old dormobile, and it, it was they that actually, I guess, introduced us to, to getting crabs, and they used to collect quite a few, and they would keep them in bread trays. They would have a bread tray with a bread tray on top, and we'd actually been travelling up one of the main streets, in shopping streets in, in Biker, beside Newcastle here, and they'd realised that the lid had... One of the, the drops had come off the biggest tree in the, in the back and the crabs had been getting out into the, the back of the old dormobile that we were driving. And of course, this was an old dormobile with holes in the floor and the crabs had all been plopping out as the sort of van progressed up the road. So pulled into the side of the road and, and here's a group of sort of two guys in their, their 50s and, and, and myself wandering down this high street, picking crabs out of the gutter and people are standing aghast at what we were doing it was yet another faux pas I guess with crabs but the feature <laughs> I think all the way through our, our fishing history it's quite interesting Getting back to the actual fishing again do you have any preference for either daylight or darkness or can both be equally productive under the right conditions? Obviously conditions the stage of the tide and the condition of the sea in terms of its roughness etc play an essential part in when to fish, but invariably it's darkness that provides the, the best opportunity because the fish are coming onto the shoreline when it gets dark. As soon as it gets dark, they're, they're there. So most of the club competitions in the northeast, with the exception of the odd Sunday ones, are held in the evening. They're all, all in the darkness. So you're always going to catch more fish if you can target it during the darkness. But if you can get the conditions right... There's no reason why you can't get some good fish during the daylight hours. But I would suggest codlins, if you're fishing for cod, you're better off in the darkness than you are in the daylight. Other species, it's not so bad. You can, in fact, you need the daylight for the, the mackerel. And I think it, a good, bright, sunny day is excellent for the likes of uh, the bass and the, the place. But in addition to the rock ledges and beaches, the northeast coast also has some pretty formidable piers. Tynemouth Pier is the one that I fish quite frequently with. 
being a member of the old retired members of Timeworth Club, the fish on the pier every two weeks and certainly every week during the summer. It's a significant pier, it's half a mile long. And it's mirrored on the other side at South Shields by a similar one. And it's an extremely substantial structure. It's obviously massively stone built. And it used to have actually a tunnel that you could walk up when the sea was extremely rough and you could walk the full length because what you find is that the, the, the swells come over the pier in the middle, but the round end that fishes the best, you can fish that fairly comfortably in quite a rough sea. And it was prolific. I've seen, well, there's been a lot of double figure fish off there. Similarly, on, on the South Shield side, there's been a lot of big fish off there. Both sides produce place, a lot of cold fish. Blythe, we have a couple of piers at Blythe. The West Pier has the, the big timber piles and the whole thing creaks when there's a, a sea run and it, it, it literally moves. And it can actually take a, a quite a significant swell without, it, it never comes over the top of the pier. I've never seen it come over the top of the pier. And it stretches out probably about 400 yards and it bends back towards the entrance of the river and it provides a wonderful fishing platform because you're fishing on a relatively clean ground and that ground also holds a lot of bait. North of that you have the Camus Pier which until recently had a number of windmills on, the power windmills. Don't know whether they're going to open that up again. It was closed prior to them putting these windmills on but again it was a another excellent place to fish. South of us, we've got the pier at Roger, at Sunderland, the entrance to the, the weir. That is a really good vantage point, with, which gives you access to some really good mixed ground and a, a lovely tidal run off the end of that. But unfortunately, it's got a minimum of sort of protection on it. It isn't as high as the, the time piers. There's a consequence that any rough sea can wash it quite easily uh, and it makes it totally unsafe when there's a heavy sea on. But it has been known to produce some very big fish. I remember not that long ago, a few years ago, there was a big, big turbot, certainly a local record turbot in the double figures, which is most unusual. The South Pier at, at Sunderland, unfortunately, is barred to fish in these days. Um, I guess it, it's hard to say whether it's actually a a security issue or whether it's the fact that it was abused by some of the Anglin fraternity but it's used to be a very good very good fishing place unfortunately it was also a little bit unsafe when there was a sea on because that with it running sort of laterally with the, the coastline it was prone to getting washed and I certainly saw people that nearly went in and there were there were people drowned over the years so maybe it's more to do with that than it is to do with the general abuse situation. Um, further down we've got the likes of Seam Piers. Again we've lost one of the piers to, to Anglin. The North Pier is still open to Anglin and unfortunately I, I would suggest that it's not as successful as it should be in terms of it gives you good access to some pleasant enough ground and it does produce some fish but it, it's not what I would suggest particularly prolific. But all of these areas are great areas for anglers to learn the craft. There's plenty of people there, but unfortunately, I would guess you get 
too many novices on these places and sometimes it can be a bit uh, not the most pleasant place to fish that's putting it politely and what about sandy beaches without any of the heavier stuff within casting range well obviously you're aware of Blythe Beach because we went up there or you went up there when you came across which is purely a clean beach which is total contrast to the likes of Whitley Bay Beach which it's a, or used to be a, quite a significant tourist-type attraction with its golden beach. But once the tide goes back, say, 50 yards, you're onto hard, rough, open ledges, weedy holes. Both of them are capable of actually producing quite good catches of fish when the conditions are right. And again, it, it does depend on, on the time of the year. You would never or very rarely fish the likes of Whitley Bay Beach during the summer, even if the seas were rough. Although there is the chance of catching bass these days, there's the odd bass spinning down the bottom end, uh, or coalfish down the bottom end, or even plates and mackerel at the, the sort of south end of the beach. Whereas Blythe Beach during the summer, again, you wouldn't get much other than flounders and dabs and mackerel off the beach during the summer. So the largely better fish during the winter to be quite honest going up the coast again you've got the likes of Druridge Bay a long expanse of sand uh, rocks at the bottom end south end and rocks gears you've got cars and then a massive amount of interesting sort of rock ledges at the, the north of the beach but it's a long swathe of generally cleanish ground with features only of uh, sandbars and, and, and holes which do move all the time. They move dependent on the direction of the sea. A sort of concentration of southerly seas obviously moves the sand up and uh, it's quite interesting to see over the years as you'll get the sand move from you know maybe a, a mile up a beach. One end will have no rocks at all. One part sort of two three months later it's all rock, it's flat ledges, the sand's all been removed and pushed up to the far end of the beach. And vice versa, it's quite a, an interesting learning curve to see it all happen. But obviously you need to be looking at that over a period of time and, and looking at it quite consistently on the big tides. Now I remember doing a night session with Gordon Thorns and John Stormway some years ago at a mark you directed us to on Blythe Beach. For some reason that evening you couldn't make it. And because I don't usually beach fish, on my first cast I had a bird's nest causing the baits to drop in short. While I was trying to sort things out I could feel fish tugging at the baits, so I had no other choice but to wind in. But to get at the overrun I then had to recast, and the same thing happened again. John and Gordon were casting way further out than me, but because it was dark they couldn't see how short my baits were falling. Obviously they both still caught fish. But miraculously, I ended up with 42 cod and sorted the bird's nest out later when I got home. But besides doing well when pleasure fishing, northeast anglers have an equally good track record when it comes to competition fishing. Is that because of the difficulties of fishing in your neck of the woods, or are they competitive people generally by nature? Yeah, I do think the actual learning curve in terms of the variety of ground and, and the, the complexity of the fishing that we've got means that you've actually got to be on your toes and not complacent in terms of your vision. A large proportion of 
match angling these days is spent sat in your box watching your rod counting the clock and just putting a bait out and fishing on a time basis so having sort of fished all sorts of ground up here you've had to learn a lot of, of different aspects of fishing and you haven't been fixated on putting a bait out as far as you can and you learn to find an angle that enables you to be more successful with the fishing and when you come into to contact with like-minded anglers and certainly the, the were, there is a, a clique of anglers in the north a large number of them actually get to the same sort of age and some of them are a bit older than I am these days and we're all now getting back together again fishing competitively in pensioners match which is rather strange because they're still on on the match scene nationally and still doing very very well but the fact that you a lot of your matches when you're going away used to be roving matches matches where you could actually pick where within a venue you could actually fish obviously the fact that you could read a bit of ground the fact that you understood the relationships of baits and the species that you were looking for meant that you you could actually be fairly successful and that translated even into the likes of the fixed pegged match where your skills if you got a good peg you knew that you're going to do fairly well and that's i think where the competitive edge came from and over the years certainly when you look back i think the number of successes have been well with the sort of average and it was interesting when you go back to the the scottish forays when we first used to go up into scotland in the 60s the um the success in the matches up, up there they put down the fact that they couldn't get crab and, and we only we had all this crab but what they didn't know was at the time and they, they learned obviously after a while was that we were getting our crab in scotland beside where we were fishing and we were putting the time in to go and have a look and explore and catch fish and then go back and actually fish matches against them with their own bait in their own areas and it was down to i guess that knowledge that we'd picked up from fishing all types of ground and trying all sorts of baits i guess uh, and it, it certainly worked well it still works well today to be quite honest although as we get older i think the the opportunity to fish places on a an advantaged situation have gone the the fact that we're now fishing a lot more peg matches quite often you can just put a line through it if you get a bad peg completely waste of time doesn't matter how much good bait you've got you can't catch fish if there's no fish where you're actually pegged there doesn't seem to be the big open comps these days in the way there was back in the 1960s and 70s so is the interest in shore fishing in the northeast as strong now as it was back then certainly as you suggest the the competitions that we held back in the sort of 60s 70s 80s 90s uh, there was a, a massive turnout i remember comps fishing matches where there were 2000 plus anglers in fact i organized a junior match which had more than 200 kids fished the match uh, a couple of years we did that but the apathy of, of anglers seems to have grown i mean today you look if you get 200 people out to fish the match the best this year the season that we've just had was probably around the 300 mark that was fairly exceptional i think part of the problem is that it's the same people who actually figure in the prize lists and people get put off with that 
there's been all sorts of ways of attempting to, to focus or make anglers think that they've got a better chance with the heaviest fish matches. We've had some quite a lot of those, certainly south of the Tyne. <laughs> but like everything else, it's the same anglers who do successfully well in those. I've certainly picked up a lot of cash over the years in, in some of these big fish matches. So it hasn't worked. And is this generally apathy? It's something that's hard to explain. And it's, well, tackle today is relatively cheap compared with what I, I guess, had to pay for quality gear sort of back in the, the 70s, 80s. And the opportunity to get a hold of kit today very, very cheaply, they more than capably catch fish. But I think people want it on a plate. I think they expect to be able to just go and buy bait. They expect to be able to just go down and, and fish. And when you look at some of the anglers that are out there, and certainly I give advice to people when I'm fishing and I see people that are not exactly competent, but it's definitely a, a, a lack of experience. And maybe it's just today. It's just the fact that everybody wants everything immediately and they're not prepared to put the effort in and to be successful at angling. You can be successful in a very narrow window. It's very easy to have a success and then keep trying to repeat that by going into one place and eventually you'll catch a few more fish in that same place again but being able to go and predict where it's going to fish at any given time during the year it's quite difficult it's not easily certainly you don't gain it overnight as things change some of the experiences that you've actually gained don't work anymore Yet despite all the successes, not many anglers, not only from the North East specifically, but from anywhere not based on the South Coast, get recognised for international duties these days. Have you any observations there? <laughs> it's a strange one. If you consider that it was largely run in the South over the, the sort of 60s, 70s, 80s, obviously Alan Yates was involved with it and Chris Clark and, and they all managed that. As a consequence, I think there was a focus on, on local anglers. Despite that, there, there were quite a few anglers, certainly from the northeast, who fished in the teams. But with the, the angling focused on a specific type of competition, a lot of scratching type matches, which it's an art into itself, really. It's another sort of whole different gambit of fishing meant that there were anglers who did that week in, week out down south, and as a consequence, were better at it than some of the anglers from up here. But if you take, for example, we've got one of my pals, Chris, who's probably won more comps than anybody in the country, has never fished for England. Whether he's got an appetite to do it or not, I don't really know. And whether he's got those specific skills that are needed for some of the specific matches that they have today with the sort of three hooks and scratching, maybe not the case, but... It's certainly down to who's in favour at the time. Having said that, the last captain is Bobby Gascoigne, who fishes with us today. So there's certainly no reason why northeast anglers wouldn't have been chosen. Uh, and uh, I think it's it's horses for courses these days. And I, I'm not convinced that there's a lot of people really want to go and fish some of these horrible scratching matches where you amass a weight of at least a pound and you've got maybe 10 fish. It's... I don't know. <laughs> it's a funny one. Talking to Alan Yates recently, he commented that having lots of competition wins on his CV for catching cod and dogfish is of little value today for international squad inclusion because team members need to be able to beat the Continentals at small fish snatching in clear water and that the South Coast is probably the best Britain has to offer in terms of practising those techniques. 
Yeah, yeah. And as I say, there's horses for courses. I personally derive very little fun from actually going and scratching, although I, I do participate in some of these matches like the Sea Leaves final and things like that where you're scratching for fishing. We're weighing fishing sort of 18 centimetres long. It's the competitive aspect of it all that's sort of gone through, I guess, it's a thread through throughout my fishing. It, it increases the challenge and as a consequence, I guess, enhances the whole fishing experience. But to do that day in, day out, or week in, week out, and certainly I think other anglers up here who have any sort of good experience have, have got a, a similar thought and maybe that's what's discouraged them from ever being wanting to sort of get involved in, in that aspect of it. Certainly today I think Alan's correct in such that it is about sort of snatching small fish because the continentals are into that type of fishing. But everyone to their own, I suppose. Nope, not for me either, thank you. So we've looked at the tackle, timing and types of ground available. Can I now pin you down a little more specifically and ask for a few actual marks just to get anyone started who doesn't know the area well? If anybody was looking for a, a, an area that potentially can produce fish most of the year round, although it does have peaks and troughs, the Tynestri itself is probably one of the, the more productive marks. It, it'll produce coalies at times, it'll produce whitens at times. In fact, right the way up the estuary, all the way up to virtually, well, past Newcastle, it's, I guess, one of the best places that people can go and experience a bit of fishing where they will catch fish. They can take kids down safely, and it's ideal. In fact, if I think back, there have been a number of big fish, particularly in the springtime. I think the biggest I've ever seen was about 16 pound up at Howden, which is probably about six miles from the sea. And the same day, I think I saw one about nine pound as well, with the youngster on a little spinner rod down the side. That's when we used to catch a lot of fish up there. Fishing south of the Tyne, some quite interesting marks, fishing around Suta Lighthouse. Fishing can be successful over high water, fishing from some of the, the cliff areas, or down onto the bottom and around some of these lovely rocky points and bays round by the Wherry and the, the rifle ranges around that sort of area down towards Whitburn. It it's, can be quite interesting, produce some nice quality codlins, particularly during the winter. If I was fishing during the summer and, and I wanted somewhere that had the likelihood of codlins, I think I'd probably end up further up the coast. I would go up around the, um, the Craster area. And if you're fishing up that sort of way, you've got the opportunity towards Newton there. That You've got the both sides of the, the football hole up onto Snook Point, where you're going to have a, a chance of red codlins during the summer. And you do get some numbers, reasonable numbers of coalfish at times, but um, the opportunity to get a decent pollock can prevail. And using float gear, light float gear, can have some wonderful sport if you do actually locate some of those fish. Coming back over again down in the south, fishing south of Seam on some of those beaches down there, some of them actually produce either high water or low water, but you've got to be careful where you're fishing down there, obviously, one of the, the security issues is your car. You need your car within sight because of the, the problems with hooligans pinching things. But other than that, it's not too bad. And there are some areas you've got to be careful that you, you don't get cut off by the tide uh, around like the, the foxholes. But 
down at Horden and Blackhall, you're fishing in a finely sort of rough ground with, with some nice, how would you put it, lumps of rock, big lumps of rock. And there are, when the sea's running, some reasonable fish moving around then, three and four, five sort of fish at a time. Once there's a, a lot of colour in the water, isn't unknown. They, they can be pretty good. Whitley Bay itself, which is right on my doorstep, obviously is uh, a whole myriad of different small fishing marks, really. Virtually all rock edges, best fished low water. And if I was picking places, there is certainly the likes of the hill and the rock edges that prevail around Cullercourt Harbour can produce some very big fish. I've seen number 20s come out of there all in the winter. Fishing the likes of the hill. At the front of the hill, you've got probably 15, 20 foot of water virtually at the, at the side of the rocks. Uh, the rocks are fringed with a, about pool, 10, 15 foot of solid kelp at the edge. Not unknown fish to be literally at that edge, 20 yards out, 30 yards out. Uh, but the weed beds themselves run off at an angle up to the northeast and it's usually thrown up towards those under the edge of those weeds and into that edge that you actually can catch a number of fish and certainly during the summer it's not unknown to get a few fish out of there. The only problem of course around there is that there are a number of commercial boats located in Cullercourt Harbour and uh, when the salmon season's finished they're putting in cod nets and that doesn't help very much, especially when they're not very far off. Bit of a pain. Moving up Whitley Bay Beach itself, there are defined marks within the beach, despite the fact that it's um, it, it looks very similar at high water. As soon as the tide recedes, probably about just over half tide, you begin to see the actual bays that are on the beach, and from the, the north end, when you come away from the, the massive rock and weed of the Briardine Shores, you come into a, a small area of sandy bays surrounded by rock and sparse weed during the the autumn and the winter in those holes it's well worth a, a cast in terms of codlins and it's quite often you're going to get you know a few fish certainly fish five six seven pound off the beach 60 yards don't need a massive cast in fact, if you're casting too far, you're actually thrown into shallower ground. The defined holes in what they would call Little Bay at the north end and, and then moving into what they call Big Bay. Again, you can see exactly where these holes are. Uh, once the sea's moving, you can see the crescent of, of white water. And between, for instance, Little Bay and Big Bay, there's a, a small area of flat skiers, which receding tide you can get out onto and you're fishing into a little bit again, into a little bit of sparse weed. And each of these areas seems to hold a lot of fish because, again, it's another little larder where there's lots of crabs in here and there's lots of small fish. To a degree, there are some worms in there and all of this gets washed out. Certainly can produce very, very well in the sort of September, October, November. And that's the same all the way through that particular beach coming back all the way through you've got a number of, of bays and all you've got to do really to understand these is to get down have a look at low water go there on the, the bigger tides have a look at it and you can see precisely exactly what's there um, and you can see when some of these bays get sanded up 
and you lose the depth, it only means that the, the sands come from one end of the beach to the other and the holes at the other end of the beach will have, have cleared out and give you the opportunity to, to get fish in there. To the south end of that particular beach runs a, a very long pipe that runs out. Care has to be exercised when you go on it because you've got a, it's built adjacent to the, the stone wall that runs along the, the seafront and it runs out along the, the ledges and it puts you probably about two, three hundred yards out and it's a wonderful fishing platform but you've got to be extremely cautious that when the sea's running from the north it will wash over the pipe um, and you've got to be really careful. Down at the base of the pipe, what they call the flat rocks, the pipe skiers, on the southeasterly sea when it's protected from the seas running through and you get the swell actually just running up inside this corner. I've had big numbers of fish out of there when it's been perfect. But having said that, this year I fished it uh, in one of the matches and phew, complete waste of time, perfect conditions, no fish. It was terrible. As I've said, I'm no shore angler, though I have been over to some of the marks you've mentioned, both as an angler and sometimes as an observer, and on every occasion I've seen good fish. But what I also saw was some very tricky terrain, which for someone like me at least, you couldn't just turn up and expect to walk away from with a bag full of fish, even if those around you were doing just that. You really do have to know what's waiting for you out there, and of course, how to approach it in such a way as to stand more than a fighting chance of getting a result, which you can then build on through further visits. The information you provided here should be one very big step in that direction. So an equally big thank you to Ken Robinson for taking the time to provide that information for us here. <laughs>